Hello, you're listening to the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Who owns history? It's a question that has only become more urgent since Matthew Stadlin met the legendary human rights lawyer Jeffrey Robinson to talk about it back in the pre-pandemic times. Robertson advocated in some of the most important British legal cases of our age, from representing Salman Rushdie during the fatwa to fighting for free speech in the famous Austrial. He also helped the Greek government with legal arguments to reunite the Parthenon marbles. That case, and the legal and moral arguments surrounding restitution more generally, are the theme of this week's episode. Jeffrey, who owns history? Ha! Well, there are some who would say wealthy Americans in gated communities in Malibu or in the big Getty Museums or MoMA or whatever in New York and, and Los Angeles. But I believe that history is owned by the people to whom it means most, to the people who created it, the people whose ancestors created it. I believe that they have first claim, if you like, upon it, rather than those of other countries who may look at it with curiosity in a big uh, London or Parisian museum, but who do not have any ownership rights. They could lease it, perhaps, back from the people we looted it from, but they have no rights, as they claim at the moment, to permanent ownership. The reality, of course, is it's possible to steal history, and that's the thrust of your book. That's right. That was what we did in the 19th century in particular. That's what the British Army, the East India Company, and, of course, uh, the other colonialist nations they not only stole it, they often stole it in very barbaric circumstances by killing uh, women and children, by killing kings, by extracting the gold, which was always a major objective, uh, as well, of course, as acquiring territory, which they did particularly in Africa. So, yes, there is, <laughs> we, we have a doctrine in law that uh, thieves become trustees for the victims from whom they loot. And in a sense, we have no deadline. We have, you can prosecute a thief at any time. And uh, so... No statute of limitations. No statute of limitations on theft. And we stole a lot of the items in the British Museum and the V&A and so forth. And it's about time we gave them back to people who cherish them, who have that particular meaningful relationship with them. You say we, we did that, we (laughs) stole this and that. You were in fact born in Australia and it strikes me that one of the reasons that we in this country are starting to re-evaluate our own history and question monumental figures such as Churchill himself is that we now among us have many people whose roots actually lie in former colonies. Yes, of course, but that I'm now English and British and Australian, a joint 
So I'm, I'm not questioning I, in reality. I'm not questioning your rights. <laughs> no, it's quite important. It's a serious I, point. I have my prostate felt in Harley Street <laughs> and my, my teeth down in Macquarie Street in Sydney. <laughs> As, uh, You've hosted Australian TV shows. But yes, of course. But I think my perspective on this is shared by a lot of United Kingdom citizens. Where, but it may be that the greater interest is being shown as a result of multiculturalism. Uh, although, to an extent, you've got to say, it was, it's been uh, inspired in many people by Macron. Now, I will come to Macron, mm. and, and, and if I don't return to him, please remind me. But the, the, at the centre of the book, of course, is the Elgin marbles, which yeah. you argue was, was stolen by Lord Elgin mm. from the Parthenon. And... I just wonder whether you could put the the strongest case on behalf of the British Museum for retaining them. <laughs> no, I couldn't. <laughs> I, I'm incapable of putting a case for the reunification of what I see as the most amazing artistic object in the world. This is the wonder, the surviving wonder of the ancient world. Look, it was constructed by Phidias in 440 BC. So it's two and a half thousand years old. What is it? The frieze is this amazing, almost a newsreel of people walking and talking, uh, drinking and eating, a lot of drinking, in what is the first democratic society. And they are celebrating democracy and peace. The gods although it's a temple, are distant, it is the focus is on human beings celebrating their humanity in the first society that we can confidently call civilized. So it's a pretty amazing piece of art and it is being ripped apart by the British Museum because it's holding back half of this astonishing frieze, the half that was taken, stolen, in my view, by Elgin. The, the re- there were two reasons I asked you to, to advocate for the other side. One is mm. because you could, as a barrister, I mean, you accept the taxi ra- rank rule, you accept <laughs> you generally the brief that is given well, to I you. I'd so get a could, lot more money if I did the <laughs> British Museum. <laughs> you could yeah. easily have found yourself, or, or, or someone uh, of similar stature as yourself, could have found yourself doing the, the other side. Yeah, and, it had a very good case uh, until the new Acropolis Museum was built and uh, opened in 2009 because they said, look, you can't put it back on the building because of the fume, the bad air, the toxicity of the city of Athens. But once uh, Greece had found itself an architecturally remarkable repository for it, then that argument no longer held. Just briefly explain why we have no claim in your view, oh. uh, what it was exactly that Lord Elgin yeah, Elgin did. was massive. How did he get away with it? He, very simply, he was massively rich. And he could have bought, he could have bought the marbles. Uh, but he knew, he didn't make an offer, because he knew that the Ottomans would not allow a temple to be despoiled. So what he did behind their back was to bribe, massively bribe, a couple of corrupt commanders to let his workmen go in and pull off 
these amazing sculptures and from the temple. And so that was how he did it. Then he came back to, brought them back to Britain. He was out of pocket. He wanted to sell them. The British Parliament did not find that he had a good title to them, but since they were in Britain, they might as well buy them. So they bought them at a price from which he could not be seen to profit, so that he was very criticised for acting as an ambassador and trying to make money out of his ambassadorship. But they bought them and they vested title in the trustees of the British Museum. They didn't accept ever that he had good title. So the British Museum has embarked over 200 years in various attempts to show that he rescued them in some way or some had some right to them. And every one of those stories is false. They said he had a firman, which is a license issued by the Sultan. He had no license and nothing issued by the Sultan. He had a letter and uh, from a Turkish official which allowed him to take moulds and to pick up bits of marble from the ground. He went far beyond that. He pulled off the entire sculptures. Had he bought it above board, as it mm. were, from the Ottomans who were ruling the place at the time, mm. you could still make a very powerful argument they should be returned to Greece anyway, given that Greece is no longer under <laughs> Ottoman rule, self-evidently. Were someone today, were you, Geoffrey Robertson, prepared to, to spend your savings on the remaining half of the marbles, and the Greek government would say, OK, you can have them? If in then five years' time they said, we made a terrible mistake, mm. we should never have sold our country's heritage, mm. then what? Well, is, is it, in other words, possible legitimately to sell heritage of that nature? Not according to the courts in Ireland and the Court of Appeal in Britain have said that items which are the keys to a country's history should belong to the state, should belong to the country and not in various circumstances to individuals. Of course, the other half of the marbles is in the New Acropolis Museum, waiting to be reunited with uh, those that Elgin stole. I've been trying to play the role of devil's advocate, but it seems to me to be an absolute outrage that we've still got the marbles and, and much other booty besides. What does it say about us as a country that not only did we do those things in the past, but that we are holding on to what we stole all those years ago? And there are worse examples that I show in my book of items that have been obtained by bloodshed, crowns for which children and women and, and old men have been killed uh, by the British Army and, and looted from African countries, from Ethiopia and so on, which we still refuse to return. I think it shows that we are still in the grip of the colonial mentality. We actually keep these items because we think we're entitled to them. Tell us a little bit, if you would, about the Benin bronzes and the Rosetta Stone. Yes, well, I, I think we're entitled to keep the Rosetta Stone. I'm not one-eyed about this. Because? I think because, first of all, there are lots of copies of it. It's not original, it's a decree giving a tax dodge to priests, as insecure rulers have often done. Uh, so it's not important. It was a piece of a building that was uh, discovered 
by the French and uh, taken back to the British Museum where its magic, the magic of the Rosetta Stone was discovered by a British scientist and a French cryptographer while it was in the British Museum. I think it belongs there. But the Benin bronzes? The Benin bronzes must go back to Nigeria, to the museum that is being built there because they were taken in what was called punishment raid. Now this area of history and of museums is full of euphemisms like punishment raid. It was an attack by the British army to gain territory and to gain loot. And the loot that they gained from Benin was quite astonishing. It was artwork done in the 15th and 16th century by uh, extraordinary artists and so it was brought back and sold a lot of it to European museums in order to pay for the raid that had secured the territory and, and had stolen all the art and killed a lot of uh, citizens of Benin in the process. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the great fears, presumably, is that if we, and by the way, when I say we, would it ultimately be down to the British Museum or to the British government to give that back, the Elgin model? It's a good point. The British government always says, oh, it's a matter for the trustees. But in fact, they could legislate. But in fact, they appoint the trustees, so they could appoint trustees with a different view, or they could simply legislate. We have a terrible finders keepers law, the art, colonial law, which is called the law against deaccession. It is actually, uh, the, the British Museum is incapable of giving back anything. Why? Because this law prevents it. Well, in which case it's irrelevant. Then, it's irrelevant then that the British government appoints the trustees of the British Museum, because even if they were to appoint trustees who were sympathetic to returning the marbles, they wouldn't be empowered to do so That's without right. legislation. It has to change the deaccession law, as France has to change its similar law, the inalienable law. Uh, no other country binds museums in this way. In America, the San Francisco Museum has just sold uh, uh, a not very good Rothko for a 50 million. Can you imagine a not very good Rothko kept in, uh, not exhibited, but the 50 million that they've got has been used to build up the exhibits that they want to show. And so it's sensible for museums to have this freedom but the British government uh, will not, despite a recommendation of a parliamentary committee in 2001 to get rid of the deaccession laws for important in significant cases, uh, there's been no action to do that. I mentioned one of the great fears. One of the great fears must be that if we were to give back the Elgin marbles, that would open the floodgates. Yes. Well, that's a fear that's expressed in relation to any demand 
for restitution. When uh, David Cameron was in India, the Indians wanted the Kohinoor diamond back, which is was once the biggest diamond in the world and was placed for luck on the arms of all the great Mughal uh, kings. And uh, he said, oh, if we give one item back, it will empty the British Museum. That's <laughs> traditional fear. Not so, a very good argument in and of itself. No, the British Museum... Neither legally nor morally. No, the British Museum, or practically, the British Museum exhibits only 4% of its property. It keeps the rest in storage. So it's not going to be emptied if a diamond here or a cultural artefact there is uh, returned. You argue in the book for the power of replicas, and yet at the same time you are critical of the approach that is an encyclopedia of a museum. You don't think that that's necessary. And yet you say that we could and maybe should institute replicas. Why do we need the replicas if we don't need the encyclopedia? I think I'm trying to make a distinction there between uh, those who have a meaningful experience from the original, and those, by and large, are the people whose ancestors made them, and those who have a less meaningful tie, uh, who would be those from other countries looking at them out of curiosity. This is an argument that Cicero made in his famous uh, prosecution of Gaius Verres, who was a corrupt Roman governor who had looted Sicily. And he talked of the Sicilians coming and seeing their cultural property in the displayed in the Roman Forum, which was like an open-air British museum. And uh, he made the point that where we are talking about where cultural property is concerned. Uh, the people whose culture it is part of are more uh, have a more meaningful connection with it than those for whom it is a matter of interest or curiosity. But we also mustn't kid ourselves. You say in the book that you had a reverential experience looking at some artefact or other in some museum or other, and you then subsequently found out that it was a replica, and you mm. wonder whether your experience was any less authentic. The fact is that if we know, at least, that we are looking at a replica, I suggest that we are unlikely to be as moved as if we were looking at the originals. So we have to accept that, that there would be an enormous loss to this country, and specifically to the British Museum, if we were to start giving back a lot. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't give it back, but we have to hold our hands up and accept that. There are all sorts of arguments you could make that we benefit from tourism and so we're actually making money from, even though the British Museum doesn't charge, we actually make money from it being the repository of so many uh, stolen cultures. Yes, I accept that, but I think morally we are obliged to give them back or perhaps to pay for the right to exhibit them, to pay the country from which they came. 
But you suggest that there is, as, as you've hinted earlier, I, I think, the, the possibility of doing this on a case-by-case basis. Oh, yes, so, so I, b- before this new, new museum at the Acropolis, do you think there would have been a good argument, or a very good argument, for us not giving it back to Greece, because you think it would have jeopardised heritage, which of course is not just the heritage of the Greeks, but of the world, and you wouldn't want to put something back into the hands of a country that, in your, in your view, might not have been able properly to curate them at Absolutely. The time. That's why I devised this schemata, this convention, because all museums now have an ethical guideline. Reply to requests for restitution uh, quickly and responsibly, but they do not say how the requests for restitution should be dealt with. And I think there's a simple rule. You First of all, consider whether the item is significant, whether it's an important piece of cultural property. We can resist applications for return of yet more amphorae or (laughs) wine jugs. You then decide that if it's cultural property wrongfully obtained, uh, obviously if it's been obtained by a crime against humanity, by uh, brutal aggression, as was the case under colonialism, if it's been obtained, as Elgin obtained the marbles, by theft or by deviousness, the Koenor diamond was obtained deviously from uh, a young Maharaja, then it presumptively goes back, unless, and then you set out the various rules to ensure preservation. You wouldn't return a cultural item to Libya at the moment in the middle of a war. You wouldn't return it to a museum which had no air conditioning, where it would deteriorate. So you would have these exceptions that would last perhaps for a long time, which would prevent the item from going back. Where do we stop and start with all this, though? I mean, it's clear at least where we start, but where do we stop, in your view, Geoffrey? For example, with giving compensation to people or to the descendants of people and indeed countries involved in the slave trade? Or take myself as an example. Should I or my father be given back the house from which his father and his mother were expelled by the Nazis in Vienna. That actually, a second example, is something that's been, uh, is very interesting because it has been Nazi loot that has led the way to restitution. Um, the acceptance of the moral duty to give back in relation to Gestapo confiscations has been very important in leading the way. But In cases, for example, in Asia, where the Japanese behaved almost as badly, and yet there has not been the same demand, uh, that is something that will be followed up. I think we can go, I'm not talking about the slave compensation for slavery, and I'm not talking about the uh, problems with BP and uh, opoid Uh, advertisements in museums, there are a number of issues that question whether there should be reparations for what happened in history. But I think where theft is concerned, where crimes against humanity 
are concerned, and that's the Nazi art case. But that includes the slave trade, of course. Well, it could do, and, and but it's a different. Profits, but the profits but it's from a question, the slave trade. Yeah, I know it's an interesting question, but I don't think it uh, it is the logical conclusion, because where you can apologise for all these things, and politicians do, but where they can actually give something back uh, and do something to redress the the crime then they should do it. So you draw a distinction between something not quite concrete, yeah. but like the Elgin marbles, but you draw a distinction between artefacts such as those that actually date from the period of the crime or are the objects mm. of the crime and say a, a company in America or Britain that, that has in the distant, relatively distant past benefited from the proceeds of the slave mm. trade, you would draw a distinction between those two things. You wouldn't necessarily say that that company should work out how much money it needs to give back to a particular part of the world or a particular descendant. No, but the company may well suffer reputationally and I think it's quite right that Colston, for example, the great philanthropist who was deeply involved, his money came from the slave trade, I think it's quite right to take down his statue or perhaps better add a codicil to the statue pointing out where the money came from. Uh, So I do think there are in those circumstances there are amendments that you can do to acknowledge what happened in history. That was going to be my next question, whether statues of Churchill should be torn down. You mentioned some problems with BP. What did you mean by that? Well, the British Museum has come under fire because of its being sponsored by an oil company. A lot of its younger enthusiastic members think that it should have nothing to do with BP. But v and has been criticised for its links with the Sacco family behind the Oakwood. You go to the v and there's the, the Sackler courtroom, the courtyard, the Sackler Arts and Education Centre. It's like uh, uh, v and is an advertisement for Oakwood. People uh, get very upset by that, and the answer may be to have trustees elected by the friends of these organisations rather than appointed by the government. Before I ask you a bit more about international law and then finish with a question on where you think the Elgin marbles will end up, I I promise to come back to Macron, so just briefly reinsert him into the conversation if you would. Well, I think he led the way. We we British, if I can say that, (laughs) like nothing less than having the French uh, be more moral than we are. But Macron, two years ago, said that it is wrong for African art to be the prisoner of European museums. He pointed out that 90% of African cultural heritage was in Western museums and said it had to go back. He appointed a commission which came to that conclusion and it is now being a big question as to how far France will go to implement Macron's promise. So just tell us in your experience how UNESCO, but also the ICC, the International Criminal Court, fits in to the narrative, for example, of the Elgin Marbles. Well, UNESCO has condemned Britain holding the Elgin Marbles. It has 
repeatedly every year beg Britain to engage in mediation. Britain simply takes no notice. UNESCO is a weak part of the United Nations. It's going to be even weaker in January when President Trump will withdraw and 22% of its funding will be lost. I think the best way forward, because as I explain in my book, I think international law has now reached the stage where cultural property wrongfully taken should be returned. Uh, I think that is a matter for the United Nations General Assembly to refer to the International Court of Justice for an opinion. I think that 105 nations out of 195 voted in favour of the restitution theory uh, a few months ago, and I think that should be what Greece and other countries that wish for the uh, restoration of the Parthenon marbles to concentrate on to have an international uh, court judgment to that effect. And ultimately, we need a convention and international law on the subject, which can make the sort of distinctions yes. that I try to make. It would allow for case-by-case case Allow decisions. for preservation to yes. trump uh, any... Because you wouldn't want to... Presumptive someone, right to return. You wouldn't want to cut off one's nose to spite one's face, as it were. One wouldn't want to send back uh, a great piece of cultural property to a war zone where it might be destroyed or to a country that couldn't keep it. And as Jonathan Sumption, Lord Sumption, once said to me in an interview, the law is just common sense with knobs on. <laughs> so you want <laughs> yes, to retain the common sense. Just to conclude, conclude then, there is clearly a highly unfortunate irony that one of the centrepieces of our tourism trade in this country, something of which we might, without thinking, be very proud, the existence of the Elgin Marbles in the heart of one of our key museums, was that these things were stolen and that we should obviously give them back. Do you think we ever will? I would like to think so. Jeremy Corbyn says that he will do so. Uh, so did Tony Blair, but he made it <laughs> an electoral promise that he never uh, delivered on. I think probably Corbyn is a different kind of person who would make that an issue. I think most British people would see the, as indeed the British Foreign Office always accepted in the after the war, that Greece deserved to have the marbles back. And then Melina Mercuri started demanding them back and that got up the nose of Mrs Thatcher. Melina Mercuri was famous for her Oscar-winning performance in Never on Sunday. Well, never on any day was Mrs Thatcher's response and that's when Britain became hostile. We have accepted the force of the Greek case until that time. And just for clarity's sake, we're having this conversation three weeks or so out from the general elections. At this point, we don't know whether Jeremy Corbyn will become Prime Minister. Geoffrey Robertson, QC, thank you very much. Thank you. This week's show starred Geoffrey Robertson and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by me and edited by John Doughty. If you enjoyed the show, you can watch Matt interview some of the most exciting minds on the planet. 
in our nightly live stream programme. This podcast series only features a tiny fraction of the guests we host, and we have a truly stellar lineup coming up this autumn. So in order to assuage your fear of missing out, I urge you to visit us at howtoacademy.com and find out more. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.